If you could create one powerful change at work, what would it be? Would you change the way oncologists view your role and develop a successful head and neck cancer program for patients before, during, and after their treatment? Maybe you would change the way your clinical director values your services and gets them to approve funding for tools and continuing education the same way they fund PT and OT. Or maybe you would change the way oral care and thickened liquids are managed at your facility and be the reason behind reducing rates of aspiration pneumonia thanks to the protocols you implement. Whatever the change may be, I have good news. You can make it happen in the next six months. You're invited to join the Changemakers Collective, a strategic mentorship program starting this June. I'm looking for medical SLPs who want to make some serious change at work or in their community, the kind of change that has a ripple effect. Throughout the six-month program, you'll develop a tangible goal and receive step-by-step guidance to achieve that goal. Don't have a specific goal in mind yet, but know that something needs to change. Our mentors can help you iron out the details. This includes 18 group mentor calls for advanced ASHA CEUs, templates, a private community, and high-touch support for high-level goals. Go to www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers to learn more. Again, that's www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers. This is episode 193 of the Solve Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Katrina Steele. She's a senior scientist and director of the Swallowing Rehabilitation Research Laboratory at the KITE Research Institute, the research arm of the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute University Health Network. She also holds an appointment as professor in the Department of Speech-Language Pathology, Rehabilitation Sciences Institute, Temerty Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Professor Steele is known for her commitment to pursuing theoretically driven research that will underpin clinical practice with sound empirical evidence. She holds research funding from the National Institutes of Health in the United States. Professor Steele is a current counselor on the board of directors for the Dysphagia Research Society and associate editor for the Dysphagia Journal and a founding and current board member of the International Dysphagia Diet Standardization Initiative. to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Dr. Steele. Good morning, Teresa. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Always love chatting with you. So tell the people a little bit about yourself if they don't know who you are. Okay. Uh, So um, I'm Katrina Steele. I trained as a speech language pathologist and... After about 10 years of clinical practice, I found myself frustrated um, and really frustrated because I really enjoyed all the detail we go into with swallowing assessment and in particular video fluoroscopy. 
But I felt that on the other side of all of that effort, we had very limited intervention options and would default to thickened liquids and texture modified diets, which of course is a big interest of mine. And I felt that I wanted more um, for my patients. Um, so I decided to go back and do my PhD. Um, I thought I would do a clinical trial of a rehabilitative intervention um, at the time, uh, and then quickly learned that really the fundamentals um, that would support a kind of study like that weren't in place in our literature and that we needed, I needed to go back and, and build some more foundational uh, science. And so that was really the beginning of a journey that continues today. Um, and uh, it's evolved into uh, a lot of work on swallowing physiology as viewed largely through video fluoroscopy. Um, trying to understand what's normal, what the ranges of normal are, um, how do we measure these things, and what's different in our patients, and how do we then identify those things that really are good targets for intervention so that we can then do those trials that we still desperately need to do. And along the way, I've, um, in terms of the, the topic that we were going to discuss today, become really interested in the scales that we use to measure things and learned a lot about um, the properties of those scales. And the most obvious one of those is the penetration aspiration scale. And what I've learned about that over time is that we um, aren't using it correctly in research, in particular in terms of the analyses we do. Uh, but I've also learned a lot about how it was developed and been surprised by some of what I've learned about how uh, common certain scores are, for example, in the literature. And I think it's safe to say that a lot of clinicians are not using it correctly either, because I've seen, I've seen some very opposing reports of things of people using it one way, people interpreting it another way. And I'm like, ah, we can't even come to consensus on these, these numbers. So yeah, and it's the most frequently used scale, even if <laughs> even if an intervention isn't really likely to impact airway invasion, it's the one that everybody goes to um, to report their outcomes. So I think it's important that we have a discussion about what it does measure, what it doesn't measure, and how we should handle it. All right, beautiful. So I guess that leads into what we're going to talk about today. Sure, sure. All right, so... Um, yeah, so where, where should we get started? What should we start with first? Uh, well, I guess um, the first thing to probably talk about is this, the scale's properties. We have eight numbers, one to eight. And uh, when we look at our literature, a lot of people, a lot of studies report things like average penetration aspiration scale score and standard deviations. And I think we're comfortable uh, with those kinds of measures as a rule. And it turns out though, that they're not appropriate ways to represent a person's airway invasion. And so what are some of the clues that this scale might not be best handled with that kind of measure? Well, the first thing is that it starts at one rather than at zero. And I remember actually 
a long time ago when I was giving workshops and sort of asking myself, why? Why would you not have a zero? That's an obvious score to have. And that shows you that I was assuming that the scale was what we call continuous, that, um, that it goes from a very low number to a much higher number, and that the spaces in between um, are meaningful. Um, and so not just each step, each number or integer, but maybe halfway between one score and the next score. Um, and indeed, if you look in our literature, you'll see things like, you know, the group started with a mean penetration aspiration scale score of 4.5, and then they moved on average to a score of 2.7, or I'm just making those numbers up. But it turns out that decimal places are completely uninterpretable on this scale. And one of the characteristics of scales that are not continuous is that they don't have to start at zero. And so you could label these categories alphabetically instead, and they would have the same kind of characteristics as these eight numbers. It just happens that Rosenbach and Robin, Robbins and colleagues decided to use numbers. And I think that's led people to think that they can handle it as a continuous scale. But so if it's not continuous and continuous statistics assume not only that, um, that zero is a, a plausible value, but for statistics, a, a continuous scale is not supposed to have boundaries. So it could equally well go negative or it could go way up. Um, there's no upper limit on a continuous scale. But here we just have eight numbers. There's no nine, although Maureen Lefton Greif at DRS this year made, I thought, quite a compelling proposal that uh, looking at airway invasion behaviors in babies, that there could be a phenomenon that's not captured by this scale, which is sort of physiological responses to an airway invasion event, like a change in respiratory rate or change in yeah, yeah. heart rate or something like that, that could yeah. be meaningful. She was proposing calling those nines, which is quite interesting. Um, so we have eight numbers. And so then the next question, if it's not continuous, is to ask, is it ordinal? And that would mean that a one is, in this case, better than a two, and a two is equally better than a three, and that each number is in the right order. And therefore, you know, this is like, are you um, first in a race versus fourth in a race? Uh, those are meaningful uh, positions. And so conceptually, it's really great to think maybe we have eight equally separate values, but it turns out that that isn't a defendable um, interpretation of this scale. And, and so how do we know that? Well, um, Gary McCullough, when he was a doctoral student, was hired to do sort of investigation on this scale after it had been initially published. And one of the things they did was they took those eight descriptors that they had worked so hard on and put them out to speech pathologists who were um, not very familiar with the scale yet because it was new and yet were experienced dysphagia clinicians. And they said they paired them. So they would take the description for a level 
two and the description for level four, and they would say which one of these is worse and which one of these is better. And they did that for all the combinations, the eight potential descriptors, and figured out what speech pathologists thought the right ordering was. And they discovered something really interesting. And I think most people would appreciate why they just stumbled across this difficulty with the scale, because we have really two things conflated in one. We have where did the material go? So how deeply did it enter the airway? That's question one. And it's quite clear, I think, that there are um, four uh, orders of magnitude here. You know, either it didn't get in or it went into the upper portion of the laryngeal vestibule or it went down as far as the vocal folds or below. Um, and that, that in itself would have ordinal meaning. Uh, but then we conflated it with what happens to the material? Does it stay there or does it leave? Um, and, and we have this whole ejection phenomenon. And so you end up with a score of four uh, where material goes down. Um, let me get this right. It goes into the um, laryngeal vestibule down as far as the vocal folds. And then it leaves, it's ejected from that position. And that score four is worse, a bigger number than the score of three, where the material went into that, the top portion of the laryngeal vestibule, but stayed there, didn't get ejected. And so a valid question to ask clinicians is, which of these is worse? Are you going to make your decision primarily based on where the material traveled to or on the state of affairs at the end? Um, and in a four, the material isn't there anymore. And so what they discovered was that clinicians were really mixed in their opinions about which is worse, a three or a four, and the same with a five or a six. And so when they converted all of those responses in their study into ordered numbers of, of severity, they discovered that, that clinicians thought that these scores were in the wrong order. Uh, and they also were able to model from that the sort of relative distance between each level and they discovered that the spacing wasn't uniform. Uh, and so that would suggest that the scale really doesn't meet the definition of being continuous or what we also call interval, nor does it meet the definition of being ordinal. Um, and so that means that you can't do parametric statistics on these scale results because the assumptions of those statistics are either that you have a continuous scale or if not that, that things are in the right order. <laughs> and, um, and then there are also assumptions about the frequency of scores that we can get to um, in a minute. Um, and so if it's neither continuous nor ordinal, what is it? And the only thing that's left is that these are categories. And so if it's 
categorical. You could label it A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You could label it one to eight. You could label it January to August. It doesn't matter. Uh, you might have an interpretation that one of those levels is clinically worse than another, but it doesn't have a numerical severity um, with it that can be analyzed statistically. Um, and so uh, this is where I landed. I think that the scale is categorical. And then that raises really interesting questions about, do all of these categories actually happen? Do we need eight categories in this scale? Or perhaps there are 10, or perhaps there are only two or three. And if that's the case, um, what do we know? Maybe I'll stop there for a minute and let you react before we talk about score frequency. Yeah, no, I, I just think this is all so fascinating. I think I think these are all things that people think of and people question, but it's almost like, who am I to question this literature that's been done? Or I'm just I'm just a clinician. You know, the researchers have got this stuff covered, you know. So I I love to kind of hear that there are other people out there that are questioning these things that maybe this isn't what we originally thought it was, or maybe that we're interpreting it different. Are we interpreting it different? Or is it, you know, not what we originally thought it was? So I just think this is also fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And I think you raise a really good point in that we may all be interpreting it differently. Yeah. Um, and so for DRS, um, we did a panel on this topic and, um, and the, you know, originally the plan was for last year and it was going to be a face-off debate kind of thing between Jim Coyle and me. And so now Jim, people may not know that Jim was the research assistant in the back who did all of the legwork on the original article. So there's nobody who knows the scale better than Jim in terms of how it was developed and what they thought it was measuring. And so as an exercise, I concocted a bunch of scenarios and, and they were scenarios that are issues we've dealt with in our research because we do a lot of rating of video fluoroscopy where we have two people rating the same video fluoroscopy and we want to make sure they agree on the result. And so where there are opportunities for disagreement, we have to come up with rules and so in these scenarios, I had concocted this kind of challenge that we deal with all the time and we've developed our rules. Uh, but my question was, would Jim score this scenario the same way that I would or that I would expect my research team to score it? And so the particular uh, complication I added was that a person takes a bolus but they swallow more than once for that bolus, maybe three times. And the material, you know, ducks in and out of the airway differently on those multiple swallows of that same bolus. And so usually clinically, we want to know how to score the bolus. Was that bolus something that they aspirated on? But maybe on the initial swallow, material just goes in and it's a three. It's sitting in the top of the vestibule and it isn't ejected and it's sitting there. And then they do another swallow and no new material goes in. 
to the vestibule, but that three trickles down and becomes a five. Yes. And then maybe on the third swallow, they react to it and they eject it and there's nothing left. And so you've got a three, you've got a five, and then you've got, you know, it could be a six if it crossed the vocal folds um, and was ejected, which by the way, hardly ever happens. <laughs> um, or, you know, or do you give it the worst score um, for that bolus? And so when I put these scenarios together with Jim, one of the things I learned from him was that he follows the wording of those levels, you know, religiously. And uh, in the wording of the original um, scale, and of course, other people have like slightly modified the wording over the years, on each swallow, really, the question is, does material enter? And so if it entered on the first, but never again, uh, then you have to somehow follow the history of that initial material entering and decide how to score it. So the three that eventually evolves to a five or a, uh, or a six, you'd have to decide. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. How to report it. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I feel like some people... Um, have... And so what you discover is that people have all sorts of different ways of handling this. And so hence we have poor agreement. And if it's complicated within a person on a single bolus across three swallows for that bolus, it's even more complicated when you add multiple boluses or a whole video fluoroscopy exam. And one of the things that had always bothered me in our own work was that um, you have to decide how to label the person. Are they an aspirator or are they not an aspirator? And yet that label might reflect one swallow out of 50, or it might reflect a pattern that you see repeatedly in the same person. And we tend to summarize based on the worst thing we've seen. Uh, and that gets really complicated because then we do things like try to understand the physiology that makes a person an aspirator versus a non-aspirator when that, that disordered physiology is probably only seen on that one circumstance rather than the other 49 uh, when it didn't happen. So that, that um, we've also shown that people who do have an aspiration event or even a penetration event don't do so every time you give them a thin liquid bolus to swallow. So it's, uh, it's not as um, stable a phenomenon as I think clinicians would believe. And indeed, myself, I was surprised when I started digging into this to realize that it's not as common as I thought it was. Yeah. I think what's, what's fascinating about what you said is I feel like there's some camps that always categorize the first bolus, and then there's camps that categorize the worst. So I, I'm curious if that came up in your conversations with Dr. Coyle too. Yeah, absolutely. And we found ourselves with a tension between the score that you would obtain in a research project where you've applied a rule to the score that you might want to document in a chart. Um, and so Jim had these great answers that said, 
well, you know, I'd score it as a three, five, one, but I'd want to comment that there was a seven in the mix, you know, um, and and so qualify the the strict research fundings with a clinical context that is meaningful for um, planning intervention. And so that it's kind of a slippery slope. If you're going to end up with a different answer clinically than you are in research, I think we need to work so we can harmonize the right answer, whatever that is. Right. So then I, I briefly alluded to the fact that sixes are rare. So maybe just to go there for a minute. So if you haven't ever read the original article, I really encourage people to read it from you know beginning to end. Because one of the things I didn't know was that there were originally nine levels and they had sort of developed these nine levels with descriptors that they thought were meaningful degrees of severity um, and plausible scenarios. And uh, they had the six, what we would call six was the level where there were two levels. So it was sort of 6A and 6B, if you like. And then 6A, material went below the vocal folds. Uh, and as they had imagined it, it was ejected. And it could be ejected just above the vocal folds so that it was in the laryngeal vestibule. That was one option, which really turns it from a 6 to a, a 5 or a 3. You've still got material sitting around. Or it could be ejected all the way out of the airway into the pharynx. And so they had left both of those possibilities open. And what they did in their research was they took a data set of video fluoroscopies that they had at the time. I believe they were all uh, individuals um, with dysphagia post-stroke or multiple strokes. And they had people in their lab score them. And they discovered that they never had the scenario where material was below the vocal folds and was ejected completely out of the airway, it didn't exist. And so they collapsed those two possible outcomes into one. It was just, it was below the vocal folds and it was ejected. And the wording, you'll, you'll know it says either, you know, out of the airway or into the laryngeal vestibule or something like that. So, so that was the first clue that, that this hypothetical event was rare. Uh, they didn't have any in that data set. And subsequently, if you go and look at studies that have reported how often the different scores happen, you discover something very interesting. We have a lot of ones and we have a handful of twos. We have quite a few threes and fives. And then we have sevens and eights. But two scores are exceptionally rare and they're four and six. And in both of those scenarios, material goes in, it's, a, it's deeper than the top of the laryngeal vestibule, and it is successfully ejected. And it doesn't matter whose data set you look at. You know, first I thought, was this something weird about our data? But it turns out, no, it's true in our data. It's true in Jim Coyle's data. It's true in Susan Langmore's data. Um, fours are rare and sixes are even more rare to the point where I've been known to, to speculate that it's imaginary. You know, six doesn't happen. Um, and no sooner had I said that somewhere than I actually saw a six 
and um, and but they are really unusual. Um, and I suspect that they are seen in certain patient populations, um, particularly where there's recurrent laryngeal nerve damage and not in others. And so that then also uh, the fact that you have certain scores that hardly ever happens also becomes a problem statistically um, because there's an assumption of a bell curve distribution, not the case. And so it brings up the possibility that we should be having fewer than eight categories and what, how many should we have and what would they be? Then it's a free for all. And in the literature, you see all sorts of variations. The most common is either a two-way or a three-way categorization, but then where we draw the boundaries uh, differs from study to study. And so we really need to debate this and discuss this as a field and decide what the best breakdown is. In an article I wrote in 2017, we proposed four-level breakdown, but in honesty, in most of my research, we use a two-level breakdown. You either don't have a problem, which would be a score of one or two, or you do. Yeah. And then where you would put four and six, if they really happened, is a debate. You know, would you put them in the normal group because at the end, there's nothing left in the airway or, or not? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so the field hasn't arrived at a consensus on that. What do you think we have to do to whip them into a consensus? <laughs> well, I think the conversation has started. Yeah, yeah. And um, so the article I wrote in 2017, we've actually seen um, quite a lot of uptake with people shifting from doing ANOVAs and parametric statistics to frequency-based statistics where you look at how often scores in you know particular scores happen and so the probability of having a score that's bad versus a score that's not bad um, and does that shift um, so that's great um, and so then the debate is you know, how how do you decide which bucket to put a score into and I think at least the conversation started and it actually makes things easier <laughs> if if you decide to only have two levels, um, statistically, it's much easier. But also, it, you don't have to worry then about the fact that fours and sixes aren't in your data set. But perhaps you lose some granularity when you go there. Interesting. So another thing that came up uh, in the discussion with Jim that I think is a question that a lot of clinicians have is what about the amount? And uh, the penetration aspiration scale score doesn't say anything about amount. And so I'm sure clinicians can relate to having a patient who had, in fact, it happened to us just recently. We have a patient where we had been doing intervention and we were really hoping they had improved. And in the video fluoroscopy suite uh, online, we didn't see any material going into the airway and we were all really excited and thought, yay, that treatment has worked. And then of course we went back and um, reviewed the video carefully and there was a single video frame out of, I don't know, 2000 um, in that exam that had a microscopic drop of material that went into the lower airway and wasn't ejected. So it was an eight. 
So, you know, in fact, the pre-treatment video had had eights on it, several eights, and the post-treatment video had one eight. And um, on the pre-treatment video, the eights were more obvious. The amount of material, if we had been able to measure it, was more. And so has that patient improved or hasn't that patient improved? And how big, you know, how many pixels of material in the airway do you have to have before you decide that you need to intervene with somebody? And this question has not been resolved in the field. And it's, uh, it's further complicated by things like frame rate. So in our video, we were at 30 frames per second. But if we had been at 15 frames per second, we might have missed that one frame. Yeah, yeah. And would that matter or wouldn't it matter? So I think, uh, I think that qualifying clinically, qualifying your observations by saying, we saw this happen repeatedly and the amount was you know, a lot or that, that terrible word trace that's not well-defined yes. <laughs> is clinically useful. And should it should be informing our decisions as well, of course, as our understanding of the patient's history and other things that make them more vulnerable to these events. But it is a challenge, particularly for things like inter-rater agreement. So let, let me ask you, because that brings up a really good point, because I feel like some clinicians like to score based on like an average. And I feel like that's a terrible for lack of a better term, a terrible way to do it. Because as you said, this guy with the eight, it was like a tiny bit, but it still was an eight. So if he's consistently having lower numbers and all of a sudden you throw an eight in there, it throws the average way off as opposed to somebody that may consistently have the elusive six or something like that. You know, I feel like when you, if you put two patients side by side, then you go based on their average penetration aspiration scale scores it doesn't match up sometimes. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point. And it's, it's another example of the same kind of statistical dilemma. I remember very early in my career, I was doing a study with Maggie Lee Huckabee, and we were trying to measure change after treatment. This was sort of really before the days where standard protocols were being um, really strongly enforced. And what we discovered in our little sample was that pre-treatment, we would get to the, you know, the bailout criterion where, where we knew that the person had aspirated earlier, you know, in a, in a smaller number of tasks than we would post-treatment. So maybe we only needed two boluses at the beginning and we could get to 12 boluses post-treatment before they finally showed the problem. And, and so if you're going to calculate on average, you need to have the same denominator. You need to have the same opportunity to show the problem. And that was moving in our, in our research patients. And I think that moves very often in our clinical patients. And so it's not the same playing field for comparison. So I, I would be much more inclined in a report rather than doing the math and saying, you know, on average, I would say something like, you know, out of six boluses presented, the problem was seen once or four times. 
And then in our rating, in our lab, we do actually ask the clinicians to give a crude appraisal of the amount. So we, we use none, <laughs> trace, and more than trace. So it's really crude, but I think it is useful. And I, my sense of my own clinical practice, and, and I think of most people, is that we are trained to respond to really tiny amounts of air of airway invasion, um, so that when we see a whole, you know, half a teaspoon going down the airway, we all shudder and hold our breath and we're we're shocked. But that typically we're managing people's um, diets and recommending intervention based on much tinier events, and so I think this is part of why there's questioning uh, in our field about uh, the effectiveness of our interventions is because we're applying them to perhaps quite subtle cases some of the time, and we may not see change in those patients. And so this whole debate of how much warrants an intervention is still raging. But I think obviously, if, if somebody does aspirate a whole half teaspoon of barium, you've got a very different situation than if there's a speck yeah. that went down. Yeah. Uh, so uh, this is one of the places where I guess if you're doing an electronic health record report and you have pull down menus with predetermined options, you lose or you risk not being able to describe the scenario in a way that is informative. Yeah. So uh, the majority of our literature chooses to study penetration aspiration as the primary outcome. And the majority of our literature until recently, um, I would say mishandled uh, the penetration aspiration scale. And in doing that, it's possible to see results that appear to be statistically significant and everybody gets excited. And um, you asked me in the preparatory material to talk about an article that you know, really, I found interesting. And so the article I chose was actually Dr. Langmore's 2016 study, I think, um, that some people will know where she looked at the effect of neuromuscular electrical stimulation on swallowing in head and neck cancer patients. And I was actually asked to be on the data safety monitoring committee for that study. So I had an opportunity quite early to read the plan And one of the things that jumped out immediately to me, because I was starting to think about this at the time, was that they were planning to treat the penetration aspiration scale score as their primary outcome and to treat it as if it were a continuous parameter. And, And I remember bringing up the question and for whatever reason, they decided to stick with the plan. And then I remember vividly being in the audience at DRS when the results were shared, because what happened was that the two groups, so one group had had received electrical stimulation and one group had not, they'd had a sham stimulation. And you ended up, I'm trying to remember this, so I probably won't have the numbers exactly correct, but but essentially you had a, a comparison where one group had an average penetration aspiration scale score of 5.1, and the other had an average penetration aspiration scale score 
of 4.8 or 4.9. So both hovering around five, but, you know, separated by three or four or five decimal places. And the way the statistics had run, these groups came out as statistically significant, different. And in the direction opposite to what people would expect. So I remember Susan standing up there and saying, uh, actually, the sham group did better than the electrical stimulation group. So the reason that jumped out at me was because it's possible to generate a result that looks statistically significant, but actually may or may not be. And um, And so, again, so important to decide what statistical approach you're going to use. But we have lots of articles that do this. Um, And and so you see a group move from 2.7 to 2.3. And this is seen as a significant change. And so, in fact, the majority of our literature that has used the PENASP scale as an outcome measure shows differences in that magnitude, that order of magnitude, and quite often skewed towards the the less severe ends of the scale. So another example um, would be Michelle Troche's work looking at the effects of EMST on swallowing outcomes in people with Parkinson's disease. And she had a really interesting dilemma in that at the beginning, the, the typical score was sort of in the two to three range on the scale. And they did show change. They felt they showed change, but they moved sort of average of three to average of two. When I think those of us clinically that are thinking about trying to treat aspiration are probably thinking much more about does an intervention work to change an a seven or an eight? to a one or a two, you know, can we move the whole spectrum? And we don't have articles that have really uh, done that. And, and part of the challenge is actually finding people who have that severe a problem at the beginning to study. So we have this sort of bias and skew in our literature, and which is why I think also we need to shift a little bit away from the focus on penetration and aspiration as being the, you know, the the outcome of interest. There may be much more, there may be other outcomes that can be measured that are predictors of of safety and airway invasion that do change, but we're just not capturing them. Like like what, what are you thinking? Like laryngeal vestibule closure, is it closing or isn't it closing? Um, Like some timing measures and like residue which I think is a predictor of penetration and aspiration that hasn't been well studied yet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I think that's when we get confused with that first bolus versus the worst bolus one. Because if you're going by the first one, eh, but then if you have this massive amount of residue that just keeps spilling and spilling and spilling, then the numbers are totally different. So yes, yes. And um We uh, published a study last year where we tried to answer a question we've been interested in for a long time, which is how much residue is too much? And the twist that we landed on 
was we decided uh, rather than measuring the residue at the end of one swallow and looking at what happens on the next swallow, we decided to take every swallow as its own unit and measure the residue that was there at the beginning, um, which got there somehow on previous tasks. And we measure residue using pixel-based tracing methods. And what we discovered was, uh, and what we realized, I guess, was when we had been doing it the other way, we weren't taking into account the starting situation of a bolus. And it's probably reasonable in most swallowing assessments to assume that there shouldn't be any material in the pharynx at the beginning of your exam. There could be pooled secretions that we can't see on a video fluoroscopy and people who do these exams know very well that secretions can be um, an issue. Uh, but let's assume like on the very first bolus that everything is clean to begin with and you have whatever you have. Um, from that point forward, the pharynx is contaminated and, and assumptions that things start clean are no longer valid. Now you might have some where the pharynx is completely clean at the beginning, but in our patients, probably there's going to be some junk in the pharynx at the beginning of every new bolus and every new swallow. And so we measured that and said, okay, let's, let's look at that and, and what the prediction is regarding penetration and aspiration. And we found a value um, at which the risk of penetrating and aspirating on the swallow um, uh, increased by twofold. So it was, was twice as likely. And so um, I think that's an interesting contribution um, to the literature to sort of say at this point, you've got a risk um, related to residue. Awesome. I think that statistically, one thing you can do is um, report the most common score and rather than averaging it. So if you have six boluses and five of them are ones and one is an eight, you can say the most common score was eight and nothing entering the airway. Um, but on one out of six, there was a small amount. And I think that's probably the best way to represent what happened okay. for a patient. And importantly, when you take that kind of approach, we do find that some of the things we assume to be the case, like uh, is aspiration less common on thicker consistencies, those still hold up. So uh, I think that that some of those things we... Um, believe our interventions to limit penetration and aspiration are not altered by changing our statistical frame of reference. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Any final thoughts? Uh, there are articles in our literature, in particular, an article by Fink and Ross in 2009 that raises a, a awkward possibility um, that the that some bariums are more visible than other bariums or, and, and that we need to be careful to make sure, again, it's, it's about having a, an equal playing field, equal opportunity for aspiration events to occur and for us to detect them. Um, and so this is where using standardized barium stimuli becomes so important so that you know that if you're comparing a patient 
pre-treatment to post-treatment, you've given them the same challenge and that you're, when you're reading that video, uh, that the barium is likely to be as dark on the screen and so as visible to you as the radar. And so in the United States, of course, you have Verabar, which is intended to be dark enough to detect and also not intended to leave a coating on the walls of the pharynx. And so really important to understand that what goes into the preparation of those barium stimuli uh, is targeted at this kind of expectation that it's the, an equal playing field. And the minute we go into non-standardized practice when we are making up our stimuli, those assumptions become challenged. Um, and so for those of us in Canada and the rest of the world where we don't have access to Verabar, this is a really big challenge. We have to try to figure out how to make um, barium that is uh, stable and in its detectability and dark enough uh, for us to detect um, and not likely to coat. And so if you're in that kind of context, this is where having recipes for the barium is important. But really, if there is a product readily available um, that, that has predictable, stable characteristics, that's the dream. And so I really encourage people to follow a standard here, uh, do it the same way every time, because uh, the possibility that it might just be lighter this week and you might miss it is really there. Yeah. Um, and thinking back to my own you know, early days of clinical practice, we used to just eyeball pour some barium out of a jug into a cup and add some water. And yeah, that looks thin, but that leaves us open to, to variable detectability and therefore variable accuracy in our exams. Um, so something really to pay attention to. Yeah. All right. I think that was the perfect one to end on because I think that can summarize a lot of what we do in our field. So <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Steele. I always, always love chatting with you. My pleasure. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.